Amen. Good morning, church family. Thank you guys for setting a great table here for an excellent passage we're going to be looking at this morning. The prodigal father. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 15. I invite you to do that. And this morning we're going to be uh, looking at this passage. But before I dive in, let me give you some context. Because we must understand the word in context of the verses that surround it. We must understand those verses in context of the book that it's found in. And so in order to do that, let's think for just a minute here about this context. We are sparked into three parables in Luke chapter 15 because of some murmuring of Pharisees. And as these Pharisees were murmuring to one another, Jesus launches into three parables, right? Last week when we were together, we looked at one. One told us that there was a hundred sheep, one went astray, and the farmer left the 99 and went the one. So what do we have in that passage? We have something lost, something found, and rejoicing. The next parable he moves to, the widow with the ten coins. She loses one, and she loses that, something lost, she finds it, something's found, and then there's what? Rejoicing, right? And today we'll move into this text of the prodigal son, which is commonly referred to. Something is lost, the prodigal son. Something will be found, he will return. And then somebody is ticked off. So this is what we call turbulence in the text. The question is, why is the turbulence in the text there? What is Jesus trying to teach us? Why did this place this here? Now, um, this is not directly a point in the sermon. Because I want to tell you that I could preach on Luke 15 for a month and not get sick of it. I could. You might get sick of hearing me talk about it for a month. But I'm telling you, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I could preach this section for a month and not grow weary of it. Uh, for the sake of time today, we're going to look at the three main characters in this parable. We're going to talk about that and talk about some applications from that. But before I do all that, let me make one quick observation from all three of these in context. And I want you to ponder this for just a minute this morning. The lostness of our friends and our family and our co-workers that surround us. Think about this for just a moment with me. Jesus here is speaking to Pharisees and the Jews that are around them. Uh, most of the time when you're going about your day, people when you pass them in the post office or Walmart or at school or at work are not going around saying, I am so lost. I can't believe how incredibly lost I am. I wish somebody would tell me how not to be lost anymore. People don't speak that way. Most people don't even have the vocabulary for it. right? We, think, we see this first parable. In the first parable about the sheep, remember what we talked about? This is just a quick review. Why does the sheep wander off? One, because sheep are dumb, right? They just think, you know, it's a spiritual insult to be called a sheep in the Bible over and over again. Because sheep are primarily concerned with filling their stomach and what delights their eyes and their physical appetites. And they pursue that with little to no regard to the consequences of such a pursuit. So we find out in this parable that we as sheep, and the comparison that is there, we go astray because we are fixated on temporary, immediate pleasure over the things that are offered at the hand of God. So that's one aspect of lostness. Another thing that we see in the second parable of the coin is that coins are not like cell phones, right? Because uh, my wife, where is she? I just saw her a minute ago. Did she leave? 
She probably said she's had enough of my preaching after 16 years and then walked out. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, she keeps up with everything in our house. Did you know that? There's not a thing in our house she doesn't know where it is except her cell phone. She can never keep up with her cell phone. It's like the only item that she never knows where it is. I hear multiple times a day, honey, have you seen my cell phone? Where is my cell phone? And praise be to the living God that I have the tracking device on my phone where I can find it. And praise be to God, you can call that thing and it will ring and you can track it down. Because we would never keep a cell phone if that were not the case. Well, in the parable of the coin, do you have those features on this coin? Does this, can this widow call that coin, make it ring? Can the coin raise its hand and say, I'm lost and I'm under the counter. If you'll come over here and grab me, we'll be in good shape. No, the coin is hopelessly lost in that parable, right? Hopelessly lost. So there's a hopelessness about this too. And what we're going to see today in the text on the, on the topic of lostness is that we are by nature in the first one with the sheep. This is our tendency and our nature to be lost, that we are hopelessly lost with the coin. And today it is our choice many times to be lost. Let's look at this in the text. The prodigal son, here we go. And he said to them, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give to me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the countries, one of the citizens of the country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread and I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bringing the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now, this older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, 
These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice he didn't say my brother, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Amen. May God have blessing to the reading of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Because the grass withers, the flowers fade. Say it with me, church. But the word of our God endures forever. As we move through this today, I want you to be on the lookout for three people in this text. I want you to look out for the prodigal son here, the younger son, the father, and the older brother. And here's what I want you to see. I want you, if you best you can, I want you to try to hear this the way that these first century hearers would have heard it. And then I want to make some applications from that. All right, let's, let's dive in here. First of all, I want us to consider... Uh, the younger brother, the prodigal. Let's begin with him and examining him in this text. What do we learn from him? What do we know about him in this text? Jesus here tells us, a young son goes to his father and asks him to divide the property and give him the inheritance that he deserves or that he will get once his father perishes. A few things you should know about this, this first century audience that would have been hearing this, to hear this kind of request would have been utterly shocking. You see, when you're a son in a Jewish home like this, you have responsibilities at home. You stay near the father. You stay near in land to the family. You want to remain with them. It is your responsibility and duty to help care for them as they age. And here in this passage, he not only wants the money. He wants to leave. He just wants out. Give me what's coming to me. Now it was Jewish tradition. The firstborn, the elder brother gets the largest of the inheritance. So he gets double what any of the other brothers would get. So if there's only two, like there is in this passage, the elder brother would get two thirds and then the one would get a third. Uh, There may be some leeway for and some provisions for a father to be able to kind of carve not quite as much of the inheritance out, but maybe a ninth of what he would have gotten out. Uh, some, some think that might have been possible. But the greater issue is not so much the money and giving him the money. It's just being kind of completely carved out of his life. Look what this text tells us. Divided the property between them. Verse, verse 13. What's he do after he gets the money? You know, a text like this, to, to make a statement like this to a father and to a, a, a first century Jewish audience, this was stunning, shocking, and offensive. This is a dude that everybody in this passage that would have been listening to this would not have liked. And to be quite honest, as we start this uh, parable, I don't like him either. <laughs> I don't think he's talking to his father correctly. I don't think addressing your father that way, you might as well be dead because you're dead to me. Give me the money that's coming to me. I want out. Is appropriate. It's disrespectful and it breaks the command to honor your mother and your father. What's he do after he gets the money? Well, verse 13, what does it say he does? Yeah, he's going to take off. Look at this. 
not a few days after he gets the check, right? The younger son gathered all he had and took a journey. So what is the modern equivalent of this? Well, this is the modern equivalent of getting the, the check from the family estate, backing up a U-Haul to your house, and loading every piece of anything that belongs to you in that U-Haul with anything that might tether you to being at home and being with your family. is going in that U-Haul. It's going with you. You're either going to use it or you're going to sell it. But you ain't coming back. You're done. You know, some of you have family members. They grew up in Carter County. And they were ready to leave as soon as they had a chance. They wanted out of Carter County, right? Uh, they, were, they backed up the U-Haul, they loaded it up, and they went to L.A. or they went to New York or they went to whatever big city you want to pick and point to, and they were gone. And that's the attitude here, right, is I want out. I am done, right? So now we got two reasons not to like him. One, well, actually three. One, he pretty much told his dad, you can drop dead because that's about how good you are to me. Two, he wants to take the money. And then three, he's ready to run. He's ready to go. He's ready to be gone, right? Uh, to say it another way, what he's telling his father here is, Father, I wish you were dead, and I wish I could just get the material resources that's coming to me after you die. Now, how many of you dads in here want to hear that from your kids? Wish you'd just go ahead and die so I can get what's coming to me when you die, right? Now, that sounds like a kid you want to take a long trip with, right? Uh <laughs> This is where the, the story gets its name, right? Prodigal. Now, this, this may not be a word you use a lot. Uh, has anybody, I'm just curious, I'm going to do a quick survey. Outside of biblical talk, has anybody used this word this week, prodigal? Any of you said it? Perfect. So, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a little reminder of what the word prodigal means. Uh, some of you may just think it means wayward. And it can mean that. But actually, would you be shocked to know that it doesn't just mean that? Here's what it means. Listen, the definition for prodigal, adjective, spending money or resources freely and recklessly. Wasteful extravagance. You know what comes to my mind when I read that part of the definition? Do any of you all follow like the British family? Like personally, I feel like our ancestors left all that junk behind, so I'm not as enthralled with it. But some people get all into it, you know what I mean? And they're like, oh, did you see this person's going to marry this duchess and all that stuff? And I think it's all a bit silly, you know, to elevate a family like that in a culture and just pay, people pay taxes to put them up and for what so they can come out and wave. I mean, I don't get it. But anyway, um, some people are into it, though. I'm not knocking you if you are. I, I do always like to see the weddings, the British royal weddings. Not because I necessarily am a huge fan of weddings, but just because like, it's the definition of wasteful extravagance at a British wedding. Like, They probably spend on one British wedding for the royal family what everybody collectively at this church in both services would make in a lifetime, right? Like on one day. And for what? Right? So people can say, man, that was really pretty. And so they can sell collective plates. Like, I don't get it. You know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't seem to serve much function other than just being extravagant for the sake of extravagance. And I'm sure the people that are suffering in Britain love seeing their tax money go to things like that. But I'm sure that's another issue altogether. <clears throat> Back to our prodigal here, though. He is wasting his resources, right? He's wasting his inheritance. He is wasting 
his relationship with the Father, and perhaps saddest of all, he's wasting his life, isn't he? Um, he is a prodigal. He is wasteful. He is lavish. He is riotous. He is unrestrained here. He is irresponsibly living here. He is the opposite of the elder brother at the end of the story and spending his inheritance on prostitutes. He is wasteful in every sense and type of the word. Why is he telling us this story? Why, why is he telling us this parable? What are we seeing in this? Why are we being introduced to such a despicable guy, right? No doubt when they first heard this, they must have thought, this is a cautionary tale. Jesus is going to tell us about this prodigal son figure so that we know what not to do. But he'll get what's coming to him. You watch. That's the way this story is going to end. He's going to get what's coming to him, and he does. Look what happens next. Verse 14. And when he had spent everything, right, that's when you know where your real friends are is when you're out of money, right? Who's your real friends when you're out of money? A severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. How bad is he? Now, this is a young Jewish boy here, right? Young man, young Jewish man here. Verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to the citizens of that country. Obviously, this is a pagan country. This is not a Jewish country because of the line of work he ends up in. If you'll recall back, those of you who are reading through your Bible and reading along with us in the newsletter, uh, we are venturing into Leviticus. You know that Levitical law says you're not to eat any kind of an animal that has a split hoof and doesn't chew the cud and pigs eat about anything, right? So they don't just chew the cud, they chew a lot of different things. So this is on the unclean list, right? So you don't, you don't eat bacon. You don't have hand sandwiches if you're a Jew. And here, this is like a lot of Jewish boys have had bad days, right? This is a bad day for a Jewish guy, a Jewish young man. Look at this. He went out to the country. He was sent into the fields to feed the pigs. That's bad. But look at verse 16. It gets worse. <laughs> and when he was longing to be fed with their pods. Has anybody here ever slopped pigs before, raised in slopped pigs? Will you raise your hand if anybody ever, a couple of you. Okay. Can I ask you a quick question? Have you ever been out slopping the pigs, feeding the pigs, and as they're eating, looked down in that slop tray and said, you know what, I'd like to have a bite of that. That looks good. Has that ever tickled your fancy? Did you ever try that? Why not? Tell me why. Is it gross? It's nasty and gross, right? This is the bottom of the barrel. Listen to me. We don't know hunger like this as 21st century Americans. We just don't. Not what's being described here. To be quite honest and be quite frank, many of us, and I'll be the first in line to admit this, could probably go a whole week just with reading the Word together and feasting on it and bypassing meals and we would be just fine in seven days. We would be just fine sipping on water and feeding on the Word, right? We still, after seven days, probably wouldn't be this hungry, okay? This guy has reached the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. There is no worse day for a young Jewish boy than when he has come to this right here. He's forsaken, he's wasted his relationship with his father. He's wasted his inheritance. Minimum wage is so low, he's at a point where the only way he can survive is to join in the slop bucket with a bunch of pigs, filthy, unclean animals that they shouldn't eat, probably should just avoid even touching altogether because of the nature of them, okay? 
This is who some of us are. We have basically told our Heavenly Father, all I'm interested in from you is an inheritance in heaven. This concept of being close to you, this concept of having a daily relationship and conversation with you, not as interested. I'm here for the blessings that you give me. I will take them and I will use them on myself and I will use them on others, but I will not be using them to bring any kind of a blessing back on you or your people. Right? Isn't that what he's doing? Bad. And then what do we see here? The next character, we see the father. We see, really, a father who loves in a way that is difficult for me to grasp as a dad. I mean, I kind of get it, but this is a type of love that we don't see in our culture very often. We just don't see it, to be quite honest. Verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? Came to himself. Interesting phrase here. What does that mean? Well, he's talking to himself. Who do you have the best conversations with? I have the best conversations with myself, right? If you're like me and you're ADD, you talk to yourself all day, right? You're having an internal dialogue with yourself all day. In this passage here in verse 17, he's having this dialogue with himself. He's coming to a realization that he is broken, that he cannot contribute back, that there's nothing he can bring with him. Remember what I said a minute ago about context? Remember back in Luke 13, Jesus was asked the question, how many will go to heaven? Will there be a lot that go to heaven, Jesus, or will there be a few? And Jesus tells them, narrow is the what? Narrow is the gate. Few will get in. Why does he say that? Think about what this son had to let go to get to this point. Think what he had to let go of to come to himself. He had to let go of his pride. He had to let go of his resources. He had to let go of his, a little bit of his culture. He had to let go of anything that would make him of value to the Father in his eyes. He had to let that go. You see, you're not going to get in the narrow gate with a bunch of baggage of, of course God died for me. I'm a great asset to the team. Of course Jesus wants me to be saved. I'm a wonderful person. No, you've got to get down in the slop bucket with the pigs and let loose all that stuff and become broken and bring nothing through the gate but the reality of your sin and your need for grace. Listen, not everybody's there. Even on Sunday mornings, I know as I preach, not everybody's there. Some of you think you're there, but you're not. You're still holding on to something. You still got some baggage you're holding on to this morning. Right? Come to yourself. Realize the grace the Father's extending to you. All right. Verse 18. What's he doing here? I will rise and go to my Father and I will say to him. All right, here's what he's doing. You ever been busted by your parents when you were growing up? Like you knew, or you knew you were about to be busted for something you weren't supposed to be doing, and you knew you were going to have to give an account for that. Like you knew you were going to have to have this terrible, hard conversation with your parent. 
And so what do you do? To prepare yourself for this terrible, hard conversation you're going to have with your parent, you rehearse the script. You get a script ready. All right? I'm going to, I'm going to, here's what I'm going to say. They're going to come in. I'm going to say this. They're going to say that, and then I'm going to say this. Right? He's getting himself ready to express what he's come to know in his own heart. And what's he say here? Father, I have sinned against heaven. That's a very Jewish, polite way to say, uh, God, forgive me for my sin. That's what he's saying. Forgive me for my sin that I've sinned against you, Lord, in heaven. I need it, right? And before you, right? I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. Verse 19. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He realizes he doesn't deserve to be called a son. He realizes that title's not on the table to be had anymore because of what he's done. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He's got the script down. He's ready to go. Verse 20. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now this, if you mark in your Bibles, do me a favor right here. I want you to highlight every verb that the father does in this parable. Okay, I want you to do that for me. Every verb. Look what he does. First of all, the father saw him. Now I'm going to give you a little, this is my imagination. This is not in the text and this is not in the commentary. This is the way I see this in my mind's eye. I imagine a father broken for his son, his youngest boy, who has left, and he longs desperately to be back in relationship with him. He longs desperately to have him back with the family. And every day, at several points in the day, I imagine that this father, who was heartbroken the day his son backed the U-Haul up and loaded his stuff off and took off for a country far away, goes and stands at that road his son took to leave. And he looks down that road multiple times a day, praying and hoping you'll see him walking down that dusty road. And this day it happens. It happens. He saw him and he felt compassion. What kind of compassion did he feel? Now listen. Nobody would have blamed this dad if when he saw this kid walking down the road, folded up those arms and said to him when he got to him, well, look who came crawling back. You think you're going to walk back into this family after the stunts you've pulled? You, you think you can just come back like nothing ever happened? You made your bed, son. You can lay in it. See you later. Would you have blamed him if he'd have done that? I mean, the kid basically told him, you can drop dead to me. I don't care. Would you blame him if he'd done that? Would he be wrong to do that? Tough love's the best love. That's what that one guy told me in construction years ago. I had a girl come up to the job site at lunchtime, beating the tar out of him after he was got done eating a sandwich and screaming at him. and Everybody was watching he come back, his face was bruised up, he didn't hit her back, and I said, dude, why in the world are you with her? He said, buddy, tough love's the best love, and I thought, no, 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 it's not, <laughs> not in every situation, not in this. Is this tough love for the Father? What is this? What is this compassion? It says here he ran. Highlight that verb, ran. I want to tell you something. 
If you're the head of a family and you're a patriarch of a Jewish household, uh, you don't run. Because when you got to run, here's what you got to do. You got to grab the front part of your, your tunic there. You got to pull it up and you got to expose your legs. And if you're the patriarch of the family, you don't expose your legs for everybody to see. You certainly don't take off running. I've never liked running. You can probably tell from my appearance I don't like running, but I don't like it. The only time I can run is if I'm chasing a ball or something's chasing me. That's about the only time that uh, I'm running. So let me just make this very clear. If you show up here on a Sunday morning and you see me running a particular direction, it would be in your best interest to run with me because I'm running away from something very bad. Like a black bear's broke in and gone mad and is killing people or something's about to explode. I, if I am running, there is something bad wrong. Right? What's that? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And every time I see someone running, particularly this time of year when it's 20 degrees, I always think, well, are they running to something or away from something? I'm always confused by runners when I see them randomly out running. Dignified people don't run. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of David in the ark. Remember when David came in dancing in front of the ark as it entered Jerusalem and he was uh, undignified, some thought. Remember, remember the tongue lashing his wife gave him when he got back? What are you doing? Have you lost your mind? Why are you the king of Israel, a dignified man like you? What are you doing dancing in front of the ark, overcome by the joy of God? What kind of compassion is this to send the patriarch of the family, the most dignified man in the house, pulled up his tunic and runs to his son? He embraces him. See that? He's got him in his clutches, and he kissed him. Now, you can't see this in English real well, but in Greek you can see it. It's present active. What's that mean? He continually kissed him. He didn't just give him one kiss of greeting. He continually kissed him as he embraced him. Can you see this picture this morning? What kind of love is this? It's scandalous. It's reckless. Pastor, what was the definition of prodigal again? I forgot. Oh, I'm glad you asked. This is the definition. The definition is spending resources freely and recklessly, extravagantly wasting. Some would look at a scene like this and what would they say? This father has lost his mind. He is loving him in a reckless way. Has he never heard of tough love? What's wrong with him? You know that boy's just going to rob him blind in the night and do it again. And yet the father embraces and kisses. And not just that. It doesn't just stop with the embrace and the running. Look at the next verse. Son said to him, Father. So he's got the rehearsed script. He's ready to handle this. I've got this down. Father, listen, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. If you just make me a servant. Look at this, verse 22. The father said to him, bring him, bring him my cloak, bring it. Now remember, remember, remember when we talked about the son a minute ago, he backed up the U-Haul, what did he take out of the house? So has the son got a, has he got a, what's he asked for here? Has the son got a robe to put on at the house? Whose robe is it? It's the father's robe, isn't it? Get my robe, don't just get any robe. Get my best one. Bring it here to my son. What's he say here? Put a ring on him. Give him back his sonship. 
he'll stand here not as a servant, as my child. And put some shoes on his feet. I don't know if he showed up barefoot or if his shoes were just worn out. It doesn't say. But whose shoes were they? They're the Father's, aren't they? He's clothed with the Father's clothing, embraced by the Father. He is restored to sonship. We don't see love like this in our culture. We just don't see it. It's scandalous. It's reckless. And I want you to think about this. Where'd this kid get his last meal? Uh, slop bucket from pigs. You think he smelled nice whenever the dad was embracing him and kissing all over him and throwing that cloak on him? No, sir. <laughs> he smelled and probably looked like somebody had been rolling around with a bunch of pigs. And God takes him, or excuse me, the father here takes him, clothes him. What happens next? Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's eat and celebrate. Grace of God is celebrated. He wants everybody there. He wants He wants the whole town to be there. It's enough to feed the whole town. He's so excited that he has come. So there is rejoicing that something that was lost was found. But the rejoicing doesn't last, does it? It doesn't last because remember back here, Jesus, excuse me, the the son here disrespects the father, brings shame on the family. And takes the money and runs. Now he's been restored. There's another prodigal here, right? The elder brother. Let's look at this. Verse 24. He says, this my son was dead. He's alive. He's celebrating here. He's lost. He's found. And they began to celebrate. Everybody's having a good time. Everything's going well. Verse 25. Enter the son. The older son was in the field. He came and drew near to the house and he heard the music and the dancing. He called out one of the servants and asked them what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was, what's, what's the verbs here for the brother? What's it say, church? He was angry and what? And refused to go in. What kind of statement does that make when the father throws a party for the whole town and community and his oldest son won't enter the room? See, now who's the prodigal? Who's the prodigal son now? It's not the younger son. It's the older son who's bringing shame on the father. No doubt the whispers through the hall were, Where's his brother? I know his brother just got off work. He should be here any minute. Why won't he come in? Where is he? What's he doing? Now, just as this father in his prodigal, scandalous love goes out and his heart is big to receive all those sinners who will turn and repent to him, he goes to his older brother. He didn't have to. He could have just left him out. He didn't have to bring him in there. And he gives him a very gentle, loving, fatherly encouragement to come in. Right? What does he say here? Fattened calf would have been enough to feed that whole village. A whole village is there and the elder son will just not go inside. What does it mean? It means everybody in the town knows that there's a domestic dispute going on between dad and firstborn. 
And that firstborn here is showing him great dishonor and his shaming in front of the whole community. And then this kind father, in the midst of being shamed by the oldest son, approaches him. I would have probably approached him with like a two by four or something. I don't know that I would have been as gracious as this father was. And what does he say to him here? The kind father goes outside to talk to his son. You get this polite address and exchange between the two. And what is he, what's his answer? Look, all these years I've served you and, I've di- and never disobeyed your command. You've never even given me a young goat. Much less the fattened cow and a celebration with all the community. You give it to, to this son. Remember how he said that? He didn't say my brother. He said this son in disgust. I just imagine him snarling his nose as he says it. What's going on here? You're hearing the voice right here. When you hear the voice of the elder brother, what are you hearing? You're hearing the voice of someone who thinks they've gotten what they've, they've not gotten what they deserve. You're hearing the voice of someone who thinks that they're entitled to the grace of God. You're hearing the voice of someone who thinks the favor of God should be on them. You're hearing the voice here of someone who thinks they deserve the love of God. You're hearing the voice here who thinks they deserve the forgiveness of God. The elder son thinks he deserves what's coming from the father. He does not think that he stands in need of the grace and therefore he cannot rejoice. You know, you think about this. How has the father handled everybody? You know, he handled the younger son in such a graceful, loving way, ready to receive his repentance. Abraham Lincoln, the great president in the United States during World War, the Civil War, he was asked one time by a reporter, he said, if the, Southern, the Southerners who are rebelling against the Union, if they will ask for your forgiveness, President Lincoln, what would you do? And you know what President Lincoln said? He said, I would treat them as if they never left the Union. <laughs> wow, that's love, isn't it? In some ways, I think our country would have been much better off if Lincoln had not been assassinated. Would have been a much better reconstruction of the South. Because his vice president thought the, Southern, the South should be harshly treated. And he was the one who took the reins. The father does this to the son. He treats the one as if he's never gone. And now he's dealing with this from this son. And how does this end with this older son? We don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us. We don't know if he ever goes into the party. We don't know if he ever accepts what he's offering. Because look, look, look what the father offers this son, what, what he says here. He tells him what? Look, these many years, he told him, he said, it's me. It's relationship with me. You've, you've got me, right? I've always been with you. Everything I have is yours. Everything I am is yours. Isn't that the true treasure of heaven? Salvation is great. Spiritual gifts are a lot of fun and a blessing. Missions are wonderful, but the relationship with the Father. That's what this faith is about, isn't it? It's not just about getting stuff and getting a get-out-of-hell-free card. And that's nice. That's not what this is really about. You see, 
He's talking to the Pharisees here, isn't he? And he's talking to the Pharisee and me and you. You know, he's saying to them, you understand that my receiving of these sinners is a picture of the Heavenly Father's attitude towards those who have strayed and yet have come to their senses and repented and trusted in God again. And the attitude of the Pharisees is an attitude that reflects a heart that are strangers to the grace of God. They're strangers to it. I think that at the end of this chapter, there's an open door for these Pharisees. And praise God that there is. Jesus here being gracious to them as this gracious Father is to them. Question is, will they accept it? It amazes me that Jesus leaves such an invitation on the table. It amazes me because these are the men who will try to see to it and do everything in their power to make sure he lands on the cross. And yet still, he leaves the door of relationship and repentance open. What are you going to do, older brother? Are you going to come in and celebrate the grace that's being offered by the Father? Or are you going to stand outside and pout? You know, I was thinking about this text this week, and I think particularly among churchgoers, we're tempted to be older brothers more than we are prodigals. Many of our prodigal siblings, they're not sitting in here this morning. If we're going to be in a ditch, we're going to be in the, we're going to be in the older brother ditch. We've got to constantly be checking our hearts, constantly be checking our hearts. Can we celebrate grace in other people's life? Are we taking lostness serious? Are we celebrating God's grace with the body on a regular basis and making that a priority? Or are we just mad because we don't get the the shakeout we think we deserve in, in God's kingdom and in our local church? And we stand over in the corner with our arms crossed until we get what we want. I want to close with an illustration Becky reminded me of that her father shared with us when we were visiting St. Louis once. He said, you know, Travis, years ago, we were taught wrong in church. I said, what do you mean you were taught wrong? It was a faithful Southern Baptist his whole life. He said, well, some preachers went into the ministry to avoid the draft. So I don't think they were actually called to ministry. And sometimes they would teach and preach that church was all about man, what we wanted and how we wanted it, what we could do. And not about what God could do. And not about God's grace. And not about the mercy of God. Don't get in that ditch with that elder brother. Jesus stands here this morning and bids you come in and celebrate with him. Will you do that? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. And today... God, we are tempted on so many sides to take the ditch on the right or the ditch on the left, to stand out in the cold, to try to shame and embarrass those and refusing to come in that we deem should, should not be given us what we deserve. And God, we are, we are either prodigals or we're elder brothers, God. Both of us thumbing our nose up at a relationship with you. 
Lord, help your prodigals today. God, some of us here, we, we got prodigals in our family. We got prodigals at our work. We got prodigals in our friend group that are far from you, that are wasting resources and wasting time and tragic of all, wasting their lives. Lord, can you help give us a heart that, is a pro, that gives a prodigal love that is so lavish and excessive that the world scratches their head? Give us hearts that want to embrace those who are far from you and far from us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, where are you? Are you a prodigal on the run? Are you wasting your resources and your time and worst of all your life? Won't you come back to the Father this morning? Or are you a prodigal that stands with his arms crossed? Bring shame on the Father as God graciously continues to work and save others. You won't join in the celebration because it's not enough about you. Won't you come to the gracious forgiveness of God this morning? Won't you do that? Or maybe this morning you just need to have a radical, prodigal love like this Father has. Lavish on those that are far from you. Maybe you need to initiate like this Father did. You need to make a call. You need to give an embrace. You need to send a note email, a text. Is God telling you to do that this morning? Won't you respond as we sing? Please stand.